This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to tune in today. Hey, if you're a new listener, this is where we talk about what to do with your money, but we base our commentary on what's happened historically when economic conditions look like they do today. And I have a terrific first segment today based on a tweet this past week from Stephanie Kelton. For those of you who don't know who Stephanie Kelton is, she is a professor and also a senior economic advisor uh, for Mr. Bernie Sanders. Now, I'm not going to get into politics. That's not the scope uh, or purpose of this program. Uh, however, Ms. Kelton this past week tweeted this, The carpenter can't run out of inches. The stadium can't run out of points. The airline can't run out of frequent flyer miles, and the USA can't run out of dollars. The carpenter can't run out of inches. The stadium can't run out of points. The airline can't run out of frequent flyer miles, and the USA can't run out of dollars. That is a scary statement, and I'll explain why in this segment. This whole idea that Ms. Kelton and others are putting forth is an idea called modern monetary theory. And basically, modern monetary theory just says that as long as a country controls the printing of its own currencies, they don't really need to budget because they can always create more money. Well, this is a recipe for hyperinflation. And yet, as ridiculous as this whole notion is, it's getting some traction. It reminds me of a quote by Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson said, If a nation expects to be ignorant and free in a state of civilization, it expects what never was and never will be. Well, the goal in this segment is to just show you that this whole idea of printing unlimited money has been tried time and time again in the past. And I'm going to give you just one example, and this is from my book, uh, New Retirement Rules. In fact, this week only, if you'd like, you can go to the website, newretirementrulesbook.com, and I'd be glad to send you a free copy of the book. Uh, the book actually uh, is a bestseller uh, on Amazon. Uh, again, the website is newretirementrulesbook.com. Well, in the book, there are a number of examples of this whole notion of modern monetary theory uh, being tried. And one was way back in the 1700s, which makes the whole labeling of this idea modern uh, a bit silly as well, because certainly this is not modern. Money has been printed in one form or another, going back all the way to the Roman Empire, actually prior to that even. Well, in the early 1700s, there was a guy by the name of John Law, who was the central banker of France. Now, a central bank like the central banks in existence today, back in the early 1700s, had the power to print money. Now, the backstory on this is interesting. Louis XIV had died, and Louis XIV was a very popular king because he provided a lot of benefits to the French citizenry. However, as a result of all these generous benefits after he died... There was a huge national debt that he left to his heir, Louis XV. Now, Louis XV was only seven years old at the time he took the throne, so there was a regent appointed 
who happened to be Louis XV's cousin, a gentleman by the name of Duke de Orleans, and the regent was put in charge of running France, and one of the first things he did was make John Law the French central banker. Now, paper currency was not yet in use at this time, but the duke wanted to pay this debt down quickly, and like today's politicians, the duke had only three choices to deal with a debt. He could raise taxes, he could cut spending, or he could print currency. And like politicians and policymakers today have decided, the duke decided to print currency. But there wasn't paper, which is a real easy currency to produce. In fact, today we produce it digitally. The Duke printed currency by debasing the coins used as currency, at least initially. Newly minted coins were made with a precious metal content that was 20% less than previously issued coins. And as a result, the French citizens started to hoard the coins. The French government then made it illegal to hoard the coins, and they punished coin hoarders by putting them in prison. Well, Law said, I've got a better idea. Let's start printing paper currency. And initially, Mr. Law said, if you want, you can take this paper currency, and at any time, you can exchange it for the coins composed of precious metals. Well, paper currency is obviously a lot easier to use than coins, so it became very popular, and a lot of the the coins came out of circulation. Mostly left in circulation was paper currency. Well, that gave Law license to print more paper currency than he had coins to back. Now, this actually happened here in the United States in the 60s, as recently as the 60s. Back in the 60s, the U.S. dollar was backed by gold. You could redeem dollars for gold at a rate of $35 an ounce, and that was the case until 1971 because the United States government at that time, like John Law's France in the early 1700s, printed more paper currency than they had metal to back. Well, as a result of Law's money printing, it seemed that prosperity was everywhere. In fact, money printing almost always works for a while. In fact, it seems like things get way more prosperous. However, a bubble had been created the same way bubbles are always created through easy money and easy credit. And yet, in the midst of a bubble, very few folks recognize that it is actually a bubble. Well, the Duke, the regent, was a happy guy, and he reasoned that if some currency printing was good, then more would be better, and eventually they printed enough currency so that they had to eliminate the link between the coins and the paper currency, just like President Nixon did back in 1971 after the United States did exactly the same thing. Well, now only paper currency could be used, and it was illegal to own the coins containing precious metals. Coincidentally, in 1971, it was illegal for American citizens to own gold as well. Eventually, the French financial system collapsed. When the, the money printing didn't have to be constrained by some measure of metal backing it up, the French embraced modern monetary theory wholeheartedly, and eventually the entire monetary system collapsed. What happened when it was after the system collapsed? Well, gold and silver were again reinstituted in commerce. 
And it was about 80 years before the French introduced paper currency again. And not surprisingly, the same thing happened. Uh, the assignat was used, and those economic circumstances allowed Napoleon to rise to power. And Napoleon promised to use gold and silver once again as money. So the pattern is clear. Modern monetary theory has been tried for years and years and years. And every time it's tried, loose money policies lead to debt excesses, which in turn lead to bubbles, and bubbles eventually burst. Now, in the book, New Retirement Rules, and if you're just joining me, you can get a copy of my best-selling book, New Retirement Rules, at the website, newretirementrulesbook.com. The website is newretirementrulesbook.com. And in the book, not only will you be able to read about all the times this theory has been tried, historically speaking, and it's almost scary how what's happened historically is now happening now. And that's what really what we like to talk about on the program. Now, what you'll also learn in the book are some strategies that you might think about using in your own individual situation to not only protect yourself, but also potentially prosper as this whole idea of modern monetary theory seems to take hold. And there's a lot going on now with Fed policy and central bank policy around the world to make it seem like this is the new normal, as we talked about on last week's program. Stay with me. I'll be back after these words with Mr. Joel Neroff. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. It's a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you each week free, just visit rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. That's rla.portfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we track market and economic activity every week and monitor and update our forecast for your money. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. I am pleased to have joining me on today's program, Joel Neroff. Uh, Joel is a nationally recognized economic forecasting expert. He is the founder and president of Neroff Economic Advisors. He's an economic and financial consultant to banks, to state and local governments. He has testified before Congress. His website is neroffeconomics.com. I would encourage you to check it out. It is an active website. Uh, that's N-A-R-O-F-F economics.com. And his most recent book is Big Picture Economics, How to Navigate the New Global Economy. And Joel, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure being on with you. Joel, just for our listeners maybe that aren't familiar with uh, your work, explain to them a bit about what you do. 
Basically, you know, I have a simple philosophy about working with businesses in the business community or, or not-for-profits or the government. It's the fact that most of them know their niche in the world, whether it's their industry or what kinds of goods they're trying to sell, whatever it may be. But they rarely impose upon their business plans the idea that the economy and the direction of the economy and the developing trends in the economy may have tremendous implications for the kinds of plans that uh, they have. So my consulting business is to work with governments and business organizations to provide you know, the economic intelligence that they can use when they're doing business planning or evaluating whether the plans make sense or are working or not working. Because sometimes a plan may look like it's not doing well, uh, but when you impose the economy on top of it, it may actually be doing better than is expected. So it's essentially linking the economy to business or government activities. Well, terrific. In your book, uh, Joel, Big Picture Economics, How to Navigate the New Global Economy, um, I did a little background research on that. And one of the goals of the book is to help understand the interconnections that make the economy work. Can, can you describe for our listeners how you would define this new global economy? Well, it's, it's the fact that you know, as an economist, I look at it in, in a way that there's very little barriers to where things can be sold, where things can be sourced, where things can be produced. So you have a global economy that really is almost like a flat plane where you can operate you know, relatively seamlessly. Now, we do understand that periodically barriers do get put up and certain countries are much more restrictive in the way they operate. But even in the most restrictive countries, we can still operate in certain ways we never could in the past. And the issue is, how do we operate under those sets of, uh, of circumstances where just about every element of the economy, whether it's in the United States or any other country, is really um, related to every other element because you can do things in one place, you can produce in the in, in a certain place, and, and that relates us all in production and sales and distribution, and and that's what we try to get at is talk about those issues and and, and how those interrelationships really operate. Well, there's a couple of ways I'd, I'd like to go here, but let me first just uh, start with getting your big picture global economic forecast moving ahead i think what's happened is that you know we had a real good push at least as far as the united states was concerned in the first half of this year and, and really even excuse me in the first half of of 2018 and really into the early fall of 2018 and that was largely due to the fact that the tax cuts really incentive, incented both households and businesses to spend and invest. And they did that. And so we had you know, strong growth in the second quarter, pretty solid growth in the third quarter. But what we've seen is the, the fact that tax cuts can only work so far. You have to get back to the fundamentals of the economy. And we've had a slow but steady, what I call deceleration in growth. Growth is still good. It's just not as great as it had been. And in looking out 
forward, you know, we have a high level of activity. We have tight labor markets. Wages are rising a little bit faster. And that simply implies that we'll probably continue this more moderate growth path at least through the rest of this year. It's not going to be great, but, you know, if you remember December when the markets were collapsing, everybody said, oh, gee, are we going into recession? I was writing to all of my clients, no, the fundamentals are still there. It's just that we're slowing. We're not getting slow, and there's a big difference there. So, Joel, there's been a lot. I've had guests on the program and certainly uh, have written about this. Uh, We have, uh, when you look at Treasury yields now, we have an inverted yield curve, uh, multiple inversions. Uh, There are those out there that uh, I think accurately say that uh, an inverted yield curve has often predicted or forecast uh, a looming recession. So uh, give me your take on that as an indicator and uh, if that has any validity in your view. Well, it has in the past been a very good indicator, and there's no question about it. But as I talk about in the in the book, uh, you have to have context. Uh, and I, I used to teach in an MBA program. I was a professor, and I would always explain to my students that the answer to any economic question is it depends, meaning you have to understand the circumstances in which things are happening. In the past, frequently the inversions were caused by having especially the Federal Reserve raise rates significantly. The Fed increased rates, but you can't say a one percentage point increase was significant. Uh, We had one percentage point increases in meetings in the past. So we did have some rise in interest rates, but it was only to get from extraordinarily low back closer to normal. We're not at high interest rates, and that's really the key. You know, in, in the past, the Fed drove interest rates up to high levels, which ultimately slowed the economy down, and they never knew how much it was going to slow, and they usually overdid it. In this case, we're not even at a normal level of interest rates. So while we do see the economy slowing, and that's bringing things such as short-term, excuse me, longer-term rates down, and overall inflation remaining steady. We're not in a case where the Fed has overdone it. And when we look at the economic fundamentals, I don't see any massive weaknesses anywhere, any bubbles that have formed that will burst and cause the economy to go into a recession. So I think that while we are seeing some inversions, they're not signaling a near-term term recession. That doesn't mean we won't get into a recession in 2020 or 2021. Remember, uh, in June, we get to the longest expansion on hist- in history. So this, uh, this, account- this expansion is getting a little old, and, and, and excesses are beginning to form. But I don't see a recession occurring you know, um, by the end of this year. Well, if you're just joining us, our guest today is Dr. Joel Neroff. Uh, Joel is Uh, a nationally recognized economic forecasting expert. He is the author of Big Picture Economics, How to Navigate the New Global Economy. And you can check out his website at naroffeconomics.com. And, Joel, I recently read a piece. uh, John Rubino was a guest on my program, and uh, he really noted that the Fed's reversal, really, in, in, in policy uh, late last year, early this year, where, where they're going from tightening now to easing, uh, kind of follows what 
the Bank of Japan has done, what the European Central Bank has done. All these banks have now done an about face when it comes to monetary policy, and they're uh, a bit more dovish, uh, to, to use that term. So does that mean that central bankers around the world are concerned that this economic recovery is getting more fragile? I think that's a, a, a good description of what's happening. I think the Fed's reversal was, a, at least in my view, uh, an overreaction. Um, this was Chair Powell's first crisis in December with the stock market falling uh, you know, fairly significantly. It wasn't a huge decline, but uh, it was one that, that signaled the potential for a bear market to uh, becoming and that came on top of two things happening, not just the rise in interest rates, uh, but the Fed uh, trying to normalize its balance sheet as well, which was also putting some pressure on the markets because of the withdrawal liquidity. The, as, I, as I mentioned before, the fundamentals of the economy were still pretty good in December. I thought there was an overreaction in the markets and an overreaction on the part of the Fed. And you can see as the Fed has talked a little bit more, um, they're still lending the, leading to the possibility that if the economy does rebound and we can't you know, rule that out, that they may find the need or the desire to raise rates a little bit more because they got to get back to neutral. And they're not at neutral yet. They got to position themselves so if a recession does come, they have enough bullets to fight that that war. As far as the rest of the central banks are concerned, I think what happened was they were seeing that the economy, their economies were picking up, but they weren't as strong as the U.S. economy. And when you have modest to moderate growth, you run the possibility you could either accelerate from there and decelerate from there. I think what happened was a bit of a slowdown in, in large parts of the world. In no small part, it was probably due to uh, you know some of the trade pa battles that were going on that slowed the U.S. and Chinese economies down, and, and that affected the European and other you know Japanese and other countries. So what they were doing is reacting to the economic reality that outside the U.S., you know, growth had moderated and they needed to continue to be careful because they hadn't you know, completely gotten out of the slowdowns that they had been in, you know, really since the Great Recession began. Well, Joel, you'd, you'd mentioned trade battles, and one of the things I wanted to chat with you about is uh, tariffs. Obviously, everybody has an opinion on the topic. Um, I like to study history, and when you look at what you know the effect of like the Smoot-Hawley Act was on the economy back in the in the 30s, uh, it, it obviously wasn't good. So when you say that the, the growth has moderated, what impact do you think that tariffs have had on that growth moderation, if any? Oh, I, I don't think there's any question that tariffs have played a role. Uh, some sectors, especially the farm sector, but there are other sectors uh, where it's not just the U.S. placed tariffs on farm products, especially Chinese products, but the Chinese have placed tariffs and other restrictions on uh, goods that we sell to them. Uh, this, is, this has affected both countries' growth rates. And I think that's real. And, you know, in the idea of the big picture economics and, and the navigating the global economy, the global economy works best when there's as little or as few barriers 
to trade is possible. When you put them on, you, you have consequences you really don't recognize, and they affect a wide variety of you know, industries because costs go up, because trade, you know, suppliers change, and, and this affects growth. And we're seeing that in the U.S. economy, it's it's added to the slowdown. It's not just the impact of the tax cuts wearing off, but it's also the impact on tariffs that are slowing economic growth down in the U.S. And that's affecting growth everywhere else. Because when we slow, that affects our demand for goods from around the world, and that slows uh, growth in just almost every other country that trades with us. So it's Europe, it's Asia, it's South America. It's Mexico. These are all areas that get affected by a slowdown in the U.S. and as China as well. Well, that's a perfect place to end it. We will have uh, Dr. Joel Neroff back with us in the next segment. I would encourage you to check out his website at neroffeconomics.com. His book is Big Picture Economics, How to Navigate the New World Economy. I'll continue my conversation with Joel when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. It's a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you each week free, just visit rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. That's rla.portfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we track market and economic activity every week and monitor and update our forecast for your money. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. I have the distinct pleasure of chatting today on the program with Dr. Joel Neroff. Uh, Joel is a nationally recognized economic forecasting expert. He is the founder and president of Neroff Economic Advisors. He serves as a consultant to banks, state and local governments, and his book is Big Picture Economics, How to Navigate the New Global Economy, and you can check out his website at neroffeconomics.com, and neroff is N-A-R-O-F-F, so neroffeconomics.com. And Joel, let's just go ahead and jump back in again, if we could. Prior to the break, uh, we were talking a bit about Fed policy, and recently, Larry Kudlow, who is now a top advisor to the administration, made a comment that he thinks that for the rest of his life, we are not going to see interest rates uh, much higher than they are now. And I think he's still a pretty healthy guy. So what led to the Fed increasing rates? And then what led to the about face? And how do you see Fed policy affecting our listeners moving ahead? Well, you know, what happened with the Fed is that uh, when the financial crisis hit and the Great Recession uh, not only lasted a long time, but, you know, led to an extraordinarily slow recovery, they hit 
you know, basically zero interest rates, extraordinarily low interest rates that were not normal. And the Fed started raising interest rates a few years ago and, and last year uh, decided it was time the economy was strong enough to get us back to what what was called neutral interest rates. Neutral interest rates, as economists say, is, is when the Fed neither has its foot on the gas nor the brake. Uh, and they're trying to get back up to that. And the important reason for doing that is that you know, we're in the just about in the longest recession you know, possible. We'll hit that in June that we've ever had, and we'll hit that in June. And as a result of that, um, you, know, you can't rule out a recession in the next year or two or three, and the Fed needs to be positioned. So they've been raising rates. Uh, I think what uh, Mr. Cudlow was really talking about is the fact that we're in an environment in this global economy where inflation, which is really the key driver to the uh, issue of how high rates will go, has been tamed to a large extent because if you try and uh, raise prices in the United States, there'll be some supplier somewhere else who'd be willing to undercut you. So you have in a global economy the idea that supply comes from everywhere and therefore competition comes from everywhere and prices and price increases are limited. That tells me, and I think what he's alluding to, is the fact that we're going to have relatively lower inflation rates for the next 5, 10, 20 years. It's hard to really guess. Um, and with lower inflation rates, you have lower interest rates. And, and that's, that's the point there. The real question, though, is how low is low? And, you know, it's an art rather than a science. And most economists think that this idea of a neutral Fed funds rate where the Fed's not, you know, stepping on the brake of the gas is a little bit higher than where we are now, maybe another 25 or 50 basis points. And the important point about there is having the bullets so when that recession comes. So I think to some extent he's, cre he's correct in saying we're going to have lower rates for quite a while than we did double-digit interest rates, even you know, uh, rates at the 5 and 6 or 7% rates are, are probably going to be rare. But that doesn't mean we don't get it because I think the risks we're facing right now in the economy are coming from um, the strength of the economy, especially wages, and wage increases are beginning to accelerate, and businesses are being pressured by that. We're seeing as as the world economy grew even faster, uh, we had uh, greater demands on energy, and that was raising energy prices. And when you add to that again the the tariff policies and the trade policies, that's adding more pressure. So when you have wages going up and energy costs going up, you, you have pressure on either earnings or prices, and both of those are going to potentially lead to higher inflation. So I do see uh, inflation rising over the next year, simply because when you have a good economy, you have impacts from that, and that's on the wage side, on the energy side, and therefore ultimately on the price side. So I think we're going to be seeing higher interest rates. It's just a matter of time. Joel, uh, one of the things that uh, I like to pay attention to is levels of debt in the private sector. Uh, when we take a look at 
private sector debt levels prior to the Great Recession, to use the term you've been using, they were they were high. And when you look at credit card debt, student loan debt, and automobile debt, mortgage debt, you add all those together, uh, the numbers I'm seeing are we're at a higher level now than we were prior to the Great Recession. What impact do you think that private sector debt levels might pay uh, might play in a potential recession in the next year, two, or three, as you as you noted? I think that's, again, another risk, and I think what we need to be talking about very much now is what are the risks out there. And as I, as I mentioned, inflation and higher rates and the pressures on labor is one side. The other side about it is the debt levels that are out there, and and the debt levels by themselves are not necessarily risky. It depends on how much income you have to pay that debt. And that's your capacity to pay off the debt. And so it's the distribution of the debt that matters. And there's some worries about that because, you know, a lot of the car loans, the the vehicle loans, um, they're going into um, people that during the Great Recession didn't buy new vehicles. Um, they didn't have the income growth. They didn't have the income levels. They're, you know, the, the lower to lower middle income households, which couldn't buy it, now have uh, the willingness to do it, and they're loading up on debt. You have student loan debt, which is a huge problem, especially for millennials, and, and that's affecting their ability and willingness to do things such as, you know, either buy new vehicles or buy houses. Uh, if you're as indebted as the millennials are and, and their incomes have been limited and not growing rapidly, that creates a, um, a situation where they're not capable of doing and purchasing some of the things that previous generations did. So th- to the extent that that debt is rising, it creates an additional risk. And I think you know the, the point we're really getting at is when we look at the next year or two, there are a number of places where risks are rising. Debt is one of them. And that rate is the reason why a lot of economists are saying in 19, excuse me, in 2020, uh, in, in, in 2021, uh, there's a good probability that we could go into a recession. So let's continue on this theme with talking about risks. Uh, you mentioned rising energy costs. Uh, I think anybody that puts probably gasoline in their car has has seen uh, that reflected. But uh, where do you see energy costs going, and uh, what impact will rising energy costs have on the economy uh, as a whole? Well, part of the problem we have with energy costs right now is that you know while in the U.S., you know, our production still growing, going up. We are nearly energy independent. By that, I simply mean, you know, we're still importing some energy, but we're also exporting a lot of energy. And when you net all of that out, uh, it, it comes to about an equal situation. So we're no longer really dependent on the rest of the world for for energy, and that's good. But you know, part of the reason for the price increases is that we had had this world economy that was all growing across the world. That slowed recently, but still, we, we, we've had some greater and greater demand on, on energy. But the other side of that was government policy. And here's where things such as 
the policy that that the administration has in limiting what, for example, Iran can do, whether you agree with that in a foreign policy basis, it has real economic implications. And to the extent that that lowers the supply of oil on the world market, lower supply means higher prices. Uh, so you have all of these issues of a growing economy in the world. You have some restrictions on production that OPEC's trying to implement. You have some restrictions on supply that are being created through governmental policies. And all of those are adding to this limitation on the supply, and that's driving up prices. And, you know, for for the average person who has to fill up, you know, once once a week or or once every, you know, 10 days or so, they're seeing that money come right out of their pocket. Uh, and, and, and given that most people don't have a huge amount of discretionary income, they're, they're basically taking part of their wallet and burning it in their engines. And that's reducing demand for other goods. So again, that's where the risk comes from. It slows economic growth. And it's an added reason why I think most economists, including myself, think that the economy is going to continue to moderate, that it's not going to boom and get back to where we saw it in the spring. Well, I think, Joel, we have time to maybe explore one more topic. Let's talk a little bit about housing. Uh, I read an article recently that uh, housing prices in some parts of Canada are are crashing. Uh, certainly, the rise in housing prices here in the United States has slowed, maybe uh, along with the economy. Uh, what risks do you see as far as housing is concerned, given that last time around when we had a recession, uh, was housing was kind of the canary in the coal mine? Well, housing was not just the canary in the coal mine, but it was the spark that blew up the coal mine, I'm afraid. And that was because we had a huge housing bubble. We don't have a housing bubble now, um, but we did have some pretty good uh, increases in prices in certain parts of the country. And a lot of parts of the country have price levels that exceeded where they were uh, 10 years ago when we, you know, 10, 12 years ago, 13 years ago when we hit the peaks. You know, to me, housing is a critical sector. It's a critical sector because when you think of what goes into building a new house, all the the, the products, the, the lumber, the appliances, the flooring, people move in and they buy all sorts of goods for it. Uh, similarly, even when we have uh, an, an existing home, if you if you buy, go and buy somebody else's home, you're going to make it your own. So you're bringing in new furniture, you're changing the, the walls, you're, you're doing all sorts of things that lead to greater demand. Uh, the housing market is slowing. You know, Part of it is that people are just not as mobile. They're afraid to change jobs, and, and that's a result of the, the Great Recession. Um, and, the, and there's not a lot of supply out there. And as the housing market weakens, it affects a wide variety of industries that either sell goods in, into the building of a new home or sell home-related products. I you know, used to argue, and I showed charts, that when you have a surge in existing home sales, you have a, a surge in sales of furniture and, and goods that are related to uh, fixing up a home. And as the housing market slows, all of those sectors 
are also going to slow. And that's the point of the interconnectedness of the economy. You think of it as housing, but it's really a wide variety of sectors. And to the extent that that's slowing and it will likely continue to slow, and millennials who should be out there buying like crazy are just not doing that this time around, we have a situation where that's going to also create a risk to the economy. At the minimum, it's going to slow growth. Well, we are out of time, so we're going to have to leave it there. Our guest today has been Joel Neroff. Joel's book is Big Picture Economics, How to Navigate the New Global Economy. You can check out his website at neroffeconomics.com. That's N-A-R-O-F-F economics.com. And, Joel, very much a pleasure to have you back on the program today, and would love to have you back. Well, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. You know, we have a chance to talk about things in in a little bit more detail, and, and I appreciate being on. All right. Well, glad to have you back, and RLA Radio will return after these words. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. It's a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you each week free, just visit rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. That's rla.portfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we track market and economic activity every week and monitor and update our forecast for your money. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. I'm Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to RLA Radio. Thanks to Mr. Joel Neroff for taking time out of his busy schedule this past week to give us his insights on what's going on in the economy and give us his forecast. You know, I talked in the first segment about the fact that this whole notion of modern monetary theory is gaining a lot of traction. And if you're just joining us, essentially... Modern monetary theory is simply money printing. Um, One of the 2020 presidential candidates has as an economic advisor, Stephanie Kelton. And as I pointed out in the first segment today, Ms. Kelton tweeted this past week that the carpenter can't run out of inches, the stadium can't run out of points, the airline can't run out of frequent flyer miles, and the USA can't run out of dollars. That is certainly true. However, the more dollars that are printed, the less they will be able to purchase, the less purchasing power that they will have. History teaches us that that is the case. I gave a historical example in the first segment, and if you didn't happen to listen to that first segment, uh, you can check out the podcast of the program by going to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. The podcast is posted there every week. There are also additional resources available there. That is retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. 
Now, when modern monetary theory is pursued, and full disclosure here, I am not a trained economist. I look at that as a positive rather than a negative. I tend to look at things from a common sense perspective. And if you think about it, I think you'll agree when money is created, it has to go somewhere. And when it goes somewhere, it typically goes into speculative investments like stocks and like real estate. And a bubble is created and eventually bubbles burst. That's why in the new retirement rules book, I talk about the fact that many investors, many folks planning to retire would be smart to think about using the two bucket approach. And again, the book is available if you'd like this week uh, at retirement, uh, excuse me, newretirementrulesbook.com. That's newretirementrulesbook.com. And in the book, I, I talk about the idea that you need to know what your drawdown risk is. Now, I'll talk about what drawdown is in just a minute, but this is a term that's not often used. In fact, I'll bet many of you that are listening today that have money in an IRA or have money in a 401k, I'll bet this whole term drawdown or drawdown risk is a brand new term for you. You more than likely have heard the term average annual yield used when it comes to talking about a particular investment. And I would have you consider the fact that this whole term average annual yield can be a rather misleading term. And here's why. I can explain this with a question. Would you rather have a net return of 0% or an average annual return of 25%? Now, as many of you have probably already picked up on, that is a trick question because they can be the same thing. Consider for a moment that you start with $100,000 in a hypothetical investment account and the first year you experience a 50% loss. Your $100,000 is now reduced to $50,000. In the second year, you get a 100% gain. That gets you back to $100,000. In year three, you experience another 50% loss, and in year four, you get another 100% gain. You've had two years that you've lost 50%. You have had two years you've gained 100%. Your average annual yield is 25%, but your net yield is zero. See, it's really important to think about drawdown. And for many folks, pursuing a strategy like the two-bucket approach that attempts to limit drawdown can make a lot more sense. Now, as I talk about drawdown, it's important that I give you a disclosure, and that is just because something happened in the past doesn't mean it's going to happen again in the future. In essence, there is no such thing as an investment crystal ball that works. However, when you think about drawdown, drawdown is really the distance an investment falls from peak to trough. Now, the closer you are to needing to use your money, the more important it is, in my view, to manage drawdown risk. And I draw your attention to something called the break-even curve. The break-even curve simply is the percentage gain that's required to completely recoup a loss. So in the example that I just gave you, if you have a 50% loss in an investment portfolio, you need a 100% gain subsequent to that 50% loss to get back to even. So the percentage gain you need 
after a loss needs to be exponentially larger to get the account back to even. For example, a 10% decline requires an 11.1% gain subsequent to that 10% decline to get back to even. A 90% decline, like the one the Dow Jones Industrial Average experienced during the Great Depression, requires a 900% gain to get back to even. In fact, an account in 1929 did not get back to even until 1954. Now, there are a number of sources that you can use to determine what historical drawdown has been. And again, to be fair, historical drawdown is what's happened in the past. But you can get some idea as to what your level of risk might be should that worst year in the market repeat itself. I give you those sources in the New Retirement Rules book. I also talk about the the two-bucket approach in the New Retirement Rules book. And this week on the program... If you would like to get a copy of the book, you can go to NewRetirementRulesBook.com and we'll be glad to send you a copy, NewRetirementRulesBook.com and just let us know where to mail that copy and we'll be glad to send it to you uh, completely free and without any obligation. That's our program for this week. Hope you got something you can use. I'll be back again next week.